Let us pray. O oh, gracious God, we give you thanks that we can be here, that we can draw together, that we can worship you, and that we can rest in this preparation you are working in us. Grant us, O oh Lord, to hear your word and to be drawn near to you because you have drawn near to us. And we ask this all through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Many, many years ago, back when I was in college, I had a friend, and she had a car, and she had a bumper sticker on her car. It was a strange bumper sticker that confused me. I didn't get what it meant. For the longest time, I would just stare at it and be like, what is that? And it was a simple bumper sticker. It said, I, less than he, greater than me. I puzzled over that bumper sticker for I don't know how long, just scratching my hands like, I don't get what this one means. Usually bumper stickers I could figure out pretty easily, but this particular one I wasn't, just wasn't clicking. And so one day I finally just asked her, I was like, what, what does your bumper sticker mean? I don't get it. And then she told me and I felt stupid. <laughs> I felt not very bright at that moment because it was a way of saying what John just said at the end of this gospel lesson. John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. I am less than he who is greater than me. The bumper sticker just summed up what was already a pretty pithy saying with an even more kind of meme-worthy way. I less than he greater than me. As a reminder of what our life is, of what the Christian life is, of what it means to walk in this world as a believer. I am less than he, and he is greater than me. Which means that we submit and we walk along the path that he has placed us on, knowing that the one who is greater than us is going to care for us because of what he has done for us. In many cases, we think about something being greater than us, like you think back to the old myths of the gods in Greek and Roman culture. And these gods are fickle and they're mean and they're more or less pretty evil a lot of times. They attack their own people. They abuse their own people. And so in the back of our psyche, we do assume that if someone is greater than us, then they are ready to control us. They are ready to ruin us, to make us feel worthless, to reduce us as much as possible in order that they can become greater. But that's not how our God works. Yes, he is greater than us. As John said, I must decrease so that he can increase. But what does this great and glorious God do for us? He comes down from heaven and walks this earth for us. He who is greater than us comes and walks alongside us as a human being in Jesus Christ. And that's what John is talking about here. That Jesus is the Messiah, that he is walking along his people, and being the Messiah means that he is God in the flesh, here for his people. And even though he looks like nothing, even though he seems like nothing, even though he seems so new on the scene because John has been performing his ministry for a long time, he is still greater than John. I am less than he who is greater than me. But even in the midst of that, John has joy. 
John is not afraid of what's going to happen. John is willing to walk the path that he has been placed on. That he can decrease joyfully because he knows that it means the increase of the kingdom of God. He rests in the promises of God and he has joy at his own decrease because God is increasing his kingdom. But all of this begins with a joyless discussion, though. A joyless discussion begins what we're doing. John sets the context for us that after Jesus had had a discussion with Nicodemus there in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples went out into the wilderness. They went out into the countryside and began baptizing, began ministering. And John was also out there at a place called Aenon near Salim. We're not quite sure where that is. But John says because of water was plentiful there. We assume it's still out near the Jordan. Because that's where John's ministry primarily focused was being at the Jordan because that was the liminal place between not being the people of God or being the people of God without the promise and being the people of God receiving the promise. And so John is out in the wilderness still baptizing. And a joyless discussion arises between his disciples and another Jew over purification, over how does one get truly clean before God? How is one to be made right before God? And I'm sure it probably also maybe even rotated around the idea of baptism in and of itself, because that was still a sort of new idea. It was radically new for John to be baptizing Jewish people. That wasn't something the Jewish people practiced for very long prior to John. There were some Jewish groups up in the north who had done that, who had separated from the rest of the people, and they went through some kind of baptism, purification, cleansing rite to kind of welcome themselves into their new community. But overall, the practice of baptism for the Jews involved foreigners, Gentiles who were coming in, becoming God-fearers and starting that path toward circumcision, toward becoming part of the covenant. They would practice that baptism on them to welcome them in because they were Gentiles. They were people who were so far apart from the covenant that God had not even considered them as part of his covenant. And so this was the first step. And I think that it is a logical extension of all the cleansing rituals that exist in the Levitical law that exists throughout the Mosaic covenant, that there are lots and lots of cleansing rites. And so how did baptism relate to those is probably part of the discussion, but Part of this contention, this joyless debate that was occurring was about the fact that Jesus was gaining a ministry. His disciples came to him and they said, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. See, they're acknowledging that John said something special about this man, that he had pointed to him and said that he was the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. They had heard that witness. But then they say, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. There's a sense there of they're not very happy that Jesus is gaining followers, that even John's own disciples are leaving to follow Jesus. They don't get it. Their ears, for whatever reason, haven't grasped and understood the reality of what John was pointing to. Back in John 1, we hear that witness. We hear John the Baptist witness. And they said that there was one who is coming after him that will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now he came to baptize in order to find that one who the Holy Spirit would descend upon, for that would be the one who would bring forth the Holy Spirit and be the Messiah. 
And then down in 129, it says that John saw Jesus coming and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And he bore witness in verse 32 and says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have, been, have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So there, John is bearing witness for his own disciples to hear. There in chapter 1, he gives that witness of who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. He is the one who brings the Holy Spirit. He is the carrier of the Holy Spirit and will pour him out to all who come to him. And so from the get-go, John admits that he is before him because he was always before him. Though he comes after John in ministry, Jesus is greater than John to begin with. But John was the one sent to prepare and sent to identify, sent to discover the Messiah. But his own disciples are confused at the fact that John is losing followers. Why isn't John upset? Why isn't John frustrated that this ministry that the Holy Spirit has put him on, that has sent him into, is no longer bearing the fruit it once was? His ministry is on a downward slope instead of an upward spike. But John isn't worried about it. John doesn't enter into this joyless debate because he has recognized the joyful gift that he has received. That's right, he has received a joyful gift in his ministry and in all that he's doing. John says in verse 27 of chapter 3, John answered his disciples, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John recognizes a great and glorious truth here that a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. To say given from heaven is just a roundabout way of saying given by God. Given by the Father. All of John's ministry is a gift from the Father to him. All who had heard John and all who came to John were a gift for him to receive. He didn't earn it. He didn't make the people come. He was simply preaching the word of God. He was simply preaching that the people should repent and prepare their hearts, prepare their lives for the coming of the Messiah, that they would be ready for him. Any knowledge of who John is, any popularity that he might have had with the people, all flowed out of the Father's grace toward him. It was a gift. It was a kindness of God, his compassion and his desire to make Jesus known, to make the Messiah known that he brought these people to John. All that John accomplished was a gift, was out of grace. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. God is gracious and John received that grace and he went out and obeyed the calling. That calling that God placed upon him. And that calling was to be but a mere messenger preparing the people to receive the Messiah. John's role is to go before because he's the Messiah. He's the messenger, not the Messiah. Like I said, he said this many times already. 
We went through what he said in chapter 1. We know what he said in the other Gospels. And here he reinforces it. You have heard me say, I am not the Christ. I have only been sent before him. John knew that Jesus' ministry was supposed to grow, and so he can receive the joyful gift of preparing the way. And in receiving that joyful gift of preparing the way, to know when that way is prepared, his ministry goes away. His ministry draws to a close. All those who came to John were intended to go to Jesus when Jesus came on the scene. John gives us another picture here when he talks about the bridegroom, the bride, and the friend. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Thanks to N.T. Wright, I get that. Apparently, in the Jewish culture and maybe most ancient cultures, the friend of the bridegroom is the one who went back and forth between the bridegroom and the bride to make sure all things were right between them, to make sure everything was going as it was supposed to, to make sure the bride was expectant and ready for the bridegroom to come for her. So he would go back and forth. He was to go between the communicator that prepared the bride for the coming of the bridegroom. And so here John is that friend. He is the friend of the bridegroom. Maybe in our parlance it might be the best man who runs back and forth who's going to be joyful to stand by that bridegroom to see him go and receive and take his bride, to go receive her as his own. And so the bridegroom rejoices to hear the bridegroom's, or the friend rejoices to hear the bridegroom's voice because he is carrying the bridegroom's message to the bride. Prepare, for the bridegroom is coming. John's role is that of but friend. And so when the bridegroom comes to receive his bride, he rejoices and stands aside and lets the bridegroom come. And so, before the bridegroom came, the bride was paying attention to the friend. She was listening to him. She was telling him her needs, and he was relaying to her what the bridegroom was saying. He was relaying to her messages from the bridegroom, and so she was looking upon the friend for information, looking upon the friend as the center of all attention for her. But when the bridegroom comes, the bride is to look away from that friend and look upon the bridegroom. For the bridegroom is the one she should set her eyes upon so that she, because he is the one that she has been waiting to come to her. He wants, she wants him to come and he wants to come to her. And so John understands that's all he is is but the friend. He's accomplished this task. He's born witness. He is not the Messiah, nor Elijah returned in the flesh, nor the prophet that Moses had prophesied about. Though he is Elijah after a fashion, he's in the spirit of Elijah. And that's what the people were to look for, one in the spirit of Elijah, not the literal Elijah. But he is the one crying in the wilderness that the Messiah is about to come. He is the one preparing the bridegroom. Preparing the bride for the bridegroom, I should say. And it's a beautiful picture because John is willing to step aside, to be that mere friend who loses all of his ministry, who loses all that he has built up for the sake of the bridegroom, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the Messiah coming. And who is the bride? 
The bride is us. We are the bride. Believers in Christ are the bride who are prepared by John. We're not merely other friends of the Messiah. We are the bride. We have a higher place than even the friend has. And God has chosen to make us the bride. To not make us mere friends in this sense of ones who tell and prepare for the bridegroom, but we are the bride that receives the bridegroom, the bride that is taken up by the bridegroom. So remember what Jesus said. John is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, but even the least in the kingdom is greater than him because the least in the kingdom is the bride of the Messiah, not a mere messenger. That doesn't take away from the reality that John is part of the people of God, but in this picture, he is but a friend, and we are the bride waiting. He is but one who is unworthy to stoop as a lowly servant and untie the sandal of his Lord. Regardless of his words or his power or the responses of the crowd, he sees himself as but the friend who stands aside. And it's in that recognition of that joyful gift that he's received. It enables him to then enter into a joyful decrease. And that leads us to verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. What this has all been all about, driving toward that. The friend of the bridegroom fades into the background and disappears as the bridegroom and bride come together and become one. John's ministry ends in order that Jesus' ministry would grow, in order that the kingdom of God would expand beyond all borders. He must increase, but I must decrease. This made me think of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in over in Daniel 3. Remember the dream of the big statue with the golden head, the silver shoulders, and it goes down and down to bronze and then feet of clay and iron. And it stands there, stands over the earth, this great statue of all that represents the kingdoms that will rule over the earth, beginning with Babylon and traveling on down. But then a boulder cut not from hand suddenly comes and smashes that statue and destroys it, grinds it into fine dust that is blown away like chaff on the wind. And what does that boulder then do? What does that great uncut rock begin doing? It begins growing and growing into a great mountain that fills all of the earth. It increases. It grows. And because it increases, it pushes aside all the nations of the world. It pushes aside all others who would contend with it. And the kingdom grows. For those nations of the world, for that statue, it didn't want to move. It had to be crushed and destroyed and wiped out for the kingdom to arrive because it was an enemy of the kingdom ultimately. That reminds you of various sayings from Jesus about being a stumbling block, about being a rock that crushes. That those who resist his increase will be wiped out. When you refuse to decrease before Jesus, you will lose and be crushed by him. Because his kingdom is what must increase. His kingdom is what must grow. He is the one who must grow and be more known. And John can enter into a joyful decrease because he understands the joyful gift he's been given. That everything he has came from the Father. So, if the Father sees fit for his ministry to end, 
then so be it. He can be joyful because he saw the Messiah. He found, discovered the Messiah and pointed him out to the people and entered into a joyful decrease in order that Jesus could continue to increase. His joy is complete because the bridegroom has arrived. The bridegroom is here. And with a complete joy, he can completely decrease and be reduced before Jesus and return to being a mere man before Jesus and be received completely by Jesus. It's the opposite of everything the world tells us to do. The world tells us to pursue greatness. Follow your heart and do all that is in you to make your name known. Be a world changer. Increase your stock. Increase your presence. Be an influencer. An influencer is just another kind of famous person at this point. Someone who gets a following. Someone who builds up all kinds of friends and followers online so that they can pass on their wisdom, their knowledge, their jokes, their fame, or whatever. The world tells us to constantly increase, and in order for you to increase, others have to decrease for you. Others get reduced in order that you can gain greater market share. But John tells us a secret that is, in many ways, simply the foundation. I must decrease, and he must increase. We do the opposite of what the world tells us to. The world says, grab all you can, grow as much as you can, increase as much as possible. But John says, I'm going to decrease and Jesus is going to increase. He joyfully decreases. He reduces his market share. He reduces his influence. He reduces all that he has and joyfully gives way for Jesus' increase. We likewise do that. We joyfully decrease because of the promises of the Messiah, because of the promises of God. Because the Messiah has come for us, we can joyfully decrease in order that we might see Jesus and his kingdom increase so that we can be a part of that increase of the kingdom. And it draws me back over to 1 Thessalonians. Those oh-so-popular verses there, verse in chapter 5, 6, 16, 17, and 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. There's all kinds of other commands in that passage about things that we need to be doing, but those, to me, strike me as kind of the heart. That we rejoice always and that we pray without ceasing. We give thanks in all circumstances. Those are the places where we see God's increase, where we see Jesus' increase in us that we're pulling back ourselves in order to make room for Jesus in us. Because rejoicing always and praying without ceasing are things that we do that look outside of us, that don't depend on our strength. Rejoicing isn't some mere inward feeling, but is an attitude, a disposition, a disposition that doesn't depend on what's inside, but a disposition that looks at what we have on the outside. 
And we can rejoice always because of God's promises in Christ for us. We can rejoice always and pray without ceasing, trusting God to be at work. Even when we don't see changes happening, even when it seems to get darker and darker, we continue to pray and trust that God will be at work because He has promised to work. He works in His own time and He works in His own ways, but He will continue to work by His Spirit as we continue to pray without ceasing. And we give thanks in all circumstances because we're able to rejoice because it's all based on what Jesus has done for us in the world. And so we don't have to enter into a joyless debate like John's disciples because we've received a joyful gift that all that we have is given by the Father and that creates in us a joyful decrease to receive more and more of who Jesus is and to be less and less of our old man, of our old self. Because the more we decrease that old man, the more that Jesus increases in us. And the more that Jesus increases in us, the greater and the stronger the new man becomes in our reality, in this world, in our walking the Christian faith. And so we live by that. I am less than he who is greater than me. I must decrease. He must increase. We enter into the joy of this Advent because of the work of Jesus for us. We enter into the joy of Advent because we get to see our Lord and Savior increase His kingdom. We get to see our Lord and Savior increase and become, in a sense, greater in this world as our eyes are opened more and more. And as we see Him, who is our foundation, who is our only hope, who is our only peace, who is our only joy, we can respond joyfully in receiving His good gifts for us and decrease evermore for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.